come on a journey with a cinephile. Everybody to Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I am your tour guide, David Garrett Jr. And this is the first normal episode for me of the new year. And what I decided to do as my theme here would be kind of going along the, you know, new year, new me type thing is I've made a long list of movies that I had never seen before but heard about on podcasts. It's a combination of newer and older films. I went ahead and just numbered every single one of them and put them in a randomizer. So that is going to be one of the reviews that we have on here. So the two featured ones are going to be The Grudge from this year. So the second American remake. And then I'm also going to cover Anguish from 1987. And I do have eight mini reviews for you, starting off with Tone Deaf, which I did watch last year, but because of the last episode being the year-end roundup, I didn't have a chance to kind of talk about it, so I'll do that here. I also saw the remake of The Crazies that came out in 2010. I have a short film that the director and writer of it reached out to me to check out called Making Faces. I also saw a record of Sweet Murder, Resolution, Insidious, The Purge Anarchy, and then my last one will be a Masters of Horror episode called Imprint. And I also want to thank everybody here as I didn't know if I would, you know, keep doing it for this long, so I now I'm on my 10th episode, so I'm pretty excited about that. But what I'll go ahead and do now is kick you over to a musical break as we get into the movie reviews after that.
Bangladesh. Du, du hast, du hast mich. Du, du hast, du hast mich. Du hast mich. Du hast mich gefragt. Du hast mich gefragt. Du hast mich gefragt und ich hab nichts gesagt. For my first mini review for this first normal episode of the new year, this is one that I watched in the previous year for when I was trying to cram in as many 2019 watches, and it's going to be Tone Deaf. This is written and directed by Richard Bates Jr. It stars Amanda Crew, Robert Patrick, and Haley Marie Norman. This is a comedy horror thriller from the United States. And the synopsis is a woman goes to the countryside to spend a quiet weekend after losing her job and having her last complicated relationship implode. She rents a country house from an old-fashioned widower who struggles to hide his psychopathic tendencies. This is currently sitting on a 4.8 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd. I remember hearing an interview on the Shockwaves podcast with the writer-director Bates. The premise of it sounded intriguing, so I gave it a viewing. As I was watching this... We get some of breaking of the fourth wall. When I first noticed it, I remembered back to that interview that this movie did some things that you don't really see to take a chance. And it made a whole lot of sense seeing the rating on IMDb as well as Letterboxd as clearly many people didn't like it. To be honest, I do think this movie has some flaws, but still an interesting social commentary. Just recently, I've been pretty harsh on an assessment of a movie that was too heavy-handed. I would be biased if I didn't point it out here. This film is pretty ham-fisted in what they're trying to convey. Olive, who is crew, and her friends are definitely over-the-top take on millennials. Where I'm a bit more forgiving, though, as this is a comedy, so... That pretty much makes this a satire, and they're poking fun at all of these things. That does make it work a bit better for me. And then on the flip side, you have Harvey, who is Patrick and is also a baby boomer. He's getting angry to the extreme about things that are, again, stereotypical. And it just makes for an interesting clash of the cultures from these two eras. What doesn't end up working for me is that there's this news report that we see in a bar about women being kidnapped. Olive is there on a date from a social app with James, who is Tate Ellington. The truth of what is going on there is something that is socially relevant, but it really doesn't fit outside of how Harvey gets involved. There are some things that Harvey does as well that just seem petty and not necessarily in his character. Now again, this is a comedy, but some of these things aren't really funny. Part of this also to increase the body count, I don't necessarily think that's needed. 
sticking with this dark backstory of Harvey and what they set up, I would think it would work better as this just feels like it's trying to take on too much. I almost believe they probably should have had him messing with Olive a little bit more than what we got, because that would be more in line with what he's trying to do. As for the pacing, I do think that was good. I never got bored, which is really kind of what I'm looking for a lot of times. I was interested to see where this is going to go next. I do think that some of the aspects of the story are done with a long play. So if you forget about something, it might not impact the story the same way to you. I just think that it builds as much tension as it probably could have. I will say, I really like the climax and how all of that played out. It fits what they're building towards the entire time. Now, as for the acting, despite its over-the-top nature, I liked it for the most part. Crew is an actress that I was pretty promising start in my eyes. I remember in college seeing her in a few things, and I really liked what she was doing. She disappeared for a stretch, and I'm kind of sad because I thought she was good here. She does come off as what I hate about my generation, so that was kind of funny for me. On the other side is Patrick. He's a legend for me growing up. I've seen him in so many movies. He's so talented, and I think he fits the role, especially as a counterpoint to Olive as everything I hate about that generation. I do feel he might be slightly underutilized here, if I'm going to be honest. And I would say that the rest of the cast and their performances was fine. They really perpetuate the culture of both sides. And I should probably also give a shout out here, because we do have Annalyn McCord, Ray Wise, Kim Delaney, and Nelson Franklin, of some people that I haven't you know, touched on at this point. And the movie really surprised me with its effects. They're not all great, but don't get me wrong. They went mostly practical, and the blood that comes with it looked really good, and that went a long way for me. There was a scene later that went CGI, and I wasn't a fan. We also get this spider that makes a couple appearances that was also CGI. It was small enough that I wasn't too bothered. I could just tell, and that's another thing that I thought was a little bit petty in the scenes that that was used. Now, the breaking of the fourth wall was kind of weird, and I don't really know if it was needed, because I don't know if it necessarily adds too much. I did like that when Olive loses her contacts and glasses, it was shot blurry, so we're getting to see it through like a POV shot. That I really did like. And the last thing would be the soundtrack. For the most part, it didn't really stand out to me, but I know I did notice some of the things that they took care into. Being that this is called tone deaf, we do get that Olive is not good at playing the piano. And this also becomes an interesting kind of thing here about, you know, participation trophies as nobody will tell her that she's bad. And that's not really a spoiler. We get to see that pretty early on, and it's pretty comical a lot of the times. Now, there was one parody song that was used. I don't care for the original, so I really don't like the version they have in here. I get that it's a joke song. It just doesn't work for me. So just to kind of recap this real quick. I thought this one did some really good things. I like the idea of dementia setting into this hardworking man and him losing grips with reality. I think some of the problems come from this being a comedy and trying to go satirical. I like that it's a satire. I think they went a little too far with some of the things, and it doesn't really work as well if they would have grounded in reality. There's some mixed aspects with attention. I thought the acting was good. The practical effects were great, and there's that one moment of CGI that really bothered me. The soundtrack really didn't do a whole lot for me aside from the piano aspects. Overall, I'd say it's slightly above average. I like the message that it wants to convey, just not necessarily how it plays out. So I came in here with a 5.5 out of 10. And for the second film that I saw this week, The Crazies from 2010, which is the remake. It is directed by Breck Eisner. It is written by Scott Kozer and Ray Wright. 
and it's based on the screenplay from George A. Romero for the 1973 original. It stars Rada Mitchell, Timothy Oliphant, and Daniel Panabaker. This is a horror thriller from the United States and the United Arab Emirates. This is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. The synopsis is after a strange and insecure plane crash, an unusual toxic virus enters a quaint farming town. A young couple are quarantined, but they fight for survival along with the help from a couple of other people. Now, I remember when this one was coming out. I was pretty excited to see it because I'd already had seen the original, and I'm a big fan of Romero in general. So I was interested to see what fresh take they could have for this. And I'm pretty sure this is my third viewing. I think the first time I caught it in the theater while I was at the end of my college career. And then the next one was when I got it on DVD. And this is actually the first time I've watched it though with a critical eye. Now, I don't hate remakes. And to be honest, when they're done right, I'm actually all for them. I think this one is a case of that here. This movie takes a lot of the ideas from the original, but really does make its own film. There are character names that are the same from the two leads, which are David, who is Oliphant, and Judy, who is Mitchell. And they do make a little change, though, to Judy, as she was a nurse in the original, where she's a doctor here. And we also get the military wearing similar type outfits. They're not wearing the white, like, hazmat type suits, but they are wearing the gas masks that are very similar. And in my review of the original, I said that that one hid the infection where this one didn't. I do need to correct myself as I was not remembering correctly and I was a bit misleading. Yes, the infection does later in its stages blacken the veins of the people that get it. But actually early on, though, they just start to act differently. Like there's a moment where a character of Bill Farnham who just continues to repeat the same phrase when he's asked questions and then I mean, he does something after the fact when he actually goes crazy but at that early stages he just is semi-normal still and what i do like about this one though is it makes the people more aggressive as they lose the inhibitions to stop ourselves so it's almost like their their conscience goes away i really did like that aspect and would go as far to say that this one does it better in setting the parameters of the infection it also makes for an interesting dynamic where we have crazy people hunting others in the town. They do seem to keep some of their personality as well from what I gathered. There's also some social relevancy to what we're seeing here as well. The mayor is similar to that of the one in Jaws where in this is though we have a farming community. He doesn't want to shut off the water as it is the planting season. And we also have the interesting idea that the government is stepping in and oppressing their citizens. The scary thing is that this feels like this was similar to what was done to the Japanese in World War II here in the United States, Nazi Germany with the Jews, or just separating families at the border currently. Now, the more that I think about that, David and Judy get split up here, much like in the original. That hits much closer to the example that I was, that I was going over, coming over a decade before what we're seeing currently. As for the pacing, I do feel it is a bit off, though. It's interesting, though, as it doesn't waste any time getting into what happens here. The cold open sets the tone for what's going on in this town, we get the first encounter 15 minutes in or so. I almost feel like it's just a bit chaotic. It does hold my attention. I just, I don't want it to seem like I hated that aspect. Seeing how quickly Sidey breaks down from fear and panic does help here. There's just something a bit off for me, and I'm not really sure what it is, other than saying that it's a bit chaotic. The acting here is something else that I thought was good. Oliphant is someone I forget about until I see them in a movie, and I just realize how good he is, and he does really well at being the small town sheriff. He's willing to do what he has to to protect his people, even if it means his job. 
The determination he has to protect his wife is good as well. Mitchell is also solid. I like that she's a doctor for this movie, as since we don't really get scenes with the scientists, so she's able to piece things together as we, are, as we and her learn about them. I do have to say, though, that Joe Anderson, who is Russell really steals the show if i'm going to be honest there's a bit of distrust among the survivors as to who they think is infected or who's not david and judy of course protect each other as a married couple but russell is acting strange he doesn't realize it and he's distrustful of those around him so it just makes for a interesting dynamic uh the performance of panabaker was also fine uh she plays an orderly under judy and the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed with infected people as well as soldiers. As for the effects, I thought they were really solid. If there was any CGI in this movie, I really couldn't tell which is strong for me. I'm assuming there probably was, though. I think that they did go practical with most everything, which is good. I thought the blood that we got looked solid and looked quite real. Seeing that these are infected as it takes hold to change what about their character is good. I'm really glad that with this view and I realized that during the early stages, it is also shot fine in my opinion. Now with that said, this film I still find to be interesting where we have people turning against each other. I'm from a small town, so seeing that play out here is definitely, you know, a real feeling for me. The government covering up makes it scary and it makes you wonder if anything like this could really happen or has already. The acting helps to bring this to life as well as the effects. As I said, I thought the pacing was a bit chaotic. Soundtrack really didn't stand out, but it also doesn't hurt anything. I think this does work a bit better here than the original, as it isn't as in-your-face as that original was. This still has some social commentary while being an entertaining remake. I like that it also reigns in the effects of the virus and makes it a bit more brutal. Overall, I think this is a good movie and would recommend giving this a viewing if you haven't. Or if you have and it's been a while, I would say to also give it a viewing. And I also personally put this slightly over the original, which is a little bit blast for me, for me as a Romero fan. But I have to come in at an 8 out of 10. All right. And the next one I'm going to cover is a short film called Making Faces. This comes from 2019. While Cassie, who is Willa McGregor, is trying to find her place in the world, something is trying to find its way into hers. This is written and directed by Andrew J.D. Robinson. And it stars uh, McGregor, Erin Kearney, and Gabrielle Banville. This is a horror short from Canada. And the reason I checked this out was that writer-director Robinson has reached out to me previously to check out some of his other shorts. So when he reached out for this one, I was more than happy to. I felt bad as he did it during a busy time. and But the moment that I had free time to do it, I checked it out immediately. So I came in blind, not really knowing anything that was going to happen except what the title was and just let everything wash over me. And this film does really well in its subtle nature. It establishes Cassie has issues with self-esteem by making her faces in the mirror. She has a package delivered, but the image that was supposed to be on it is blank. She sends an email asking for a refund to the person who sent it, and then she ends up getting a call from that person who is Leah Driver, who is uh, Kiri, where she is offered to resend the one that she wanted, as well as for her to choose one and get that sent to her as well. Now what they are are out-of-focus images of faces. Leah explains how she did them, while also comforting Cassie in a way that hits home. There's something not quite right about these images, though. So I'm not going to lie. I was wondering where this was going to go early on, and it's not often that you get a slow burn in a short film like we do here. 
the payoff was worth it as I could feel my anxiety rise when Cassie goes upstairs to see the other prince that she has. And Leah also makes a statement that by getting this last one, she'll have all of the collection. There's also an interesting reveal at the end when Becky, who is Banville, gets a call from Leah. When I heard the name, I thought I recognized it. And it's actually from another short that Robinson did, which I also recommend called the Becky Carmichael Fan Club. The acting is pretty solid as well. McGregor comes off as amateur, but I think that actually adds some charm here, if I'm going to be honest. She gives off a lot with her facial expressions, and when she goes upstairs near the end, her fear made me anxious, so I give her credit there. Kiri was very nice as Leah, and I love after the reveal of her character, uh, where it is leading to next. The image we get are also creepy, and I thought it was cool to have Banville's voice here as well. There's not a lot in the way of effects. While Leah's explained how she got these images, we actually get to see them how they're created, that was pretty cool. As well as being unnerving. Uh, the cinematography was also good. That said, it's not often you can come across an effective slow burn short. I'll admit, early on I was wondering where this was going to go. And that was until I saw the first images that Cassie was expecting. I like where it ended up, and I think the acting really helps it get there. We get a cool cameo of Becky's voice, and I like that. The images, like I said, are creepy, and this is shot well. Soundtrack fit for what was needed. Overall, I'd say this is above average. And... Would like to see more of this fleshed out personally into something much longer as I feel like we have something here and there could be much more in the way of story if that was the you know route that they end up going here. Um, I also like to see something here if Andrew would like to do it is filter in some of his other shorts to almost make like a universe. Doesn't necessarily have to but I do see how some of these could possibly fit together for sure. So my rating here is a 7 out of 10 and what I'm going to do is this is available on YouTube which is where I watched it. In the show notes, I'm going to include the link if you want to check it out to support, you know, an indie horror artist. And for the next review is going to be A Record of Sweet Murder from 2014. This is written and directed by Koji Shirashi. This stars Ji Wook Yeon, Kohobi Kim, Tukasa Aoi. This is a horror film from Japan and South Korea. Currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd. The synopsis is a South Korean journalist and a Japanese cameraman in South Korea are invited to an abandoned apartment building to document in what a madman believes will bring back a childhood friend. Now, I got to check this out when a buddy of mine in the horror community, uh, Derek B., said I should. So shout out to him for recommending it. We were talking about the newest remake of The Grudge, as well as the series from Japan, and about how we both like Kayako vs. Sadako, which... The director and writer of this also directed that movie. And I knew there was a little bit of buzz about this film from other people that do podcasts, so I was interested in giving this a viewing. And before I get into my review, there's not a whole like long list of characters, so I'm going to go ahead and just introduce them really quick, is that we have a reporter who is So Yeon, who is Kim. There is her cameraman who is Tashiro, who is also the writer and director of this movie, I just realized. Um, we also have Sang Joon, who is Yeon. He is the person who escaped from a psychiatric hospital and has killed a whole host of people. And he was childhood friends with So Yeon, so that's why he reached out to her. And then later on in this film, we have Tsukasa, who is Aoi. And then we also have her husband, who is Ryota, who is Ryotaro Yanmura. And this is one that I'm glad that I came in blind because I could feel my anxiety rising from the beginning. 
Now, I should point out, this is a found footage film that starts in an alleyway where, where Soyeon and Tashiro are waiting to be told where to go to, and they go to this abandoned high-rise apartment building, like from the synopsis. And as they're going up to it, they encounter Shang Jun, who has a knife, and then takes him into an apartment and, you know, shuts the door behind them. Now, once they're in this apartment, though, he is commanding that they continue filming, which he explains he needs them to do it this way or he's going to kill them. And it's interesting as the reason as to why he doesn't want them to stop filming. Now, the character of Sang Jun is interesting. He's been in a mental hospital since he was a child. And the reason being is that when he was growing up with So Yeon, they had another friend who died when they were playing a game. And he started to supposedly hear God after that young girl passes away. And that's why he was put in this hospital. But he's also claiming that all these years God continued to talk to him and told him what he has to do to bring this young girl back to life. And that God even told him how to get out of the hospital and that's how he has not gotten caught as he's had this you know, divine intervention. Now this is an interesting aspect of religion that scares me. He states that God told him that if he kills 27 people now that he's 27, this friend will come back to life. It really establishes that Song Jian is insane, and I love this build-up to it. There's so much tension that grows as he's threatening the lives uh, in hopes that they'll believe him. He's also claiming that God spoke to him through the article that So Yeon wrote by reading down the first letter of each paragraph. And it's interesting that he skips some of it where there will be like I think three or four paragraphs that he's using and then there's a bunch of it that he skips to go down to the one afterwards. So I felt that him looking for a pattern which goes back to the idea of religion where you'll kind of pick and choose what works for you and what can fit. And that's also why he wants this all to be filmed as proof. He doesn't ever want it to be shut off so people can't claim that that's where, you know, cut off and he did some sort of doctoring of the footage. And things take quite a turn when Tsukasa and Ryota show up. They're Japanese, and that's why they needed Tashiro to translate, is he is told through God and through these messages that he's receiving that he has to kill a, or that a Japanese couple is going to show up and he has to kill them. They fit what Song Jun is looking for, like I said. We see that they're not as they seem, though, as they're demented in their own way and fight back, and that's where it really gets wild. Now, something else I found to be really strong about this is the editing and pacing. They do really well in highlighting any cut, so it does make it feel like it's one continuous shot. Taking it even farther, it only runs 80 minutes or so, which contributes as well. It's a really tight film that just keeps building tension from the setup. And that's what I'm saying, the pacing and tension just build, especially from the moment they get to the abandoned apartment. And it just looks creepy, which also adds to it. Hearing the ramblings of Sang Jun about what God told him and seeing the evidence made me question until it gets to the you know final standoff. From that point, it's extremely tense, where I could feel my heart just beating to the conclusion. The crazy thing is, it isn't even this, though. It is how it ends that really blew me away. I really don't want to spoil it here. And since this is a mini review, I really won't go into it. If anybody's interested in you know chatting with me personally, I would love that. But I will say, if you like Asian cinema, I think you need to see this movie. Um, I thought the acting was strong. Yuan, I thought, is amazing here. He seems like someone who's just unhinged, and he's so convinced of what he's saying that despite how crazy it sounds, I want to believe him. He seems to feel guilty, which contributes to that as well. 
and it does make sense. I can see why Kim and Shirahashi believe him like they do, or at least entertain his ramblings as he's so convinced, and he's so convincing because of that determination. I like that as these things get crazier, they really don't know what to do or who to help. Aoi and Yanmora are interesting as their characters are revealed into all of this as well. They have a dark side along with some depravity, which makes it interesting because I always go back to you never really know somebody and just seeing these people on the street, you wouldn't get to it. But being put in the situation that they are, they're allowed to kind of reveal that. This is the main cast, but the rest really just kind of round this out for what is needed. I thought the something else that was solid were the effects. They're mostly practical. We get wounds from knives and people being hit. All of this looks pretty realistic. I thought the blood did as well. There are some effects at the end which were CGI. I'll admit they didn't look great. I didn't really have a huge issue with it because they're pretty quick and it doesn't linger on it long. So I can't say this ruins anything for me. I did get annoyed that at the end they keep making this digital film on the camera mess up. It just got to be a bit much. Cinematography though is really good to make it feel like you're right there with the characters. And I think that adds to the tension here. And being commanded like they are, I like the found footage angle because it makes sense. Now with that said, this film really had my adrenaline going until the conclusion that I didn't see coming. The acting really helps to bring this to life along with the quote-unquote one-cut found footage angle as well. This is a 6.4 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd. It gets to the point where we want to believe this escaped crazy person because of their convictions, but we know that what they're seeing can't be true. Or, you know, can it be? The practical effects look good and how this was shot. I did have some slight issues with the CGI, but there's not really enough to bother me, like, to ruin the film, you know? The soundtrack isn't really something that stood out, but it also never took me out of it, and it doesn't really hurt the tension that this film was building towards. I will warn you, this is in Korean and Japanese, so I had to watch it with subtitles on, so if that's an issue, then I would avoid this. If not, I personally find this to be a great film, one I'm excited to revisit eventually, and would highly recommend it, and my rating is a 9 out of 10. And then next I have Resolution from 2012. This is directed as well as written by Justin Benson, and it's also co-directed with Aaron Moorhead. This stars Peter Silella, Vinnie Curran, and Emily Montague. This is a horror mystery thriller from the United States, with the synopsis being a man imprisons his estranged junkie friend in an isolated cabin in the, in the boonies of San Diego, to force him through a week of sobriety, but the events of that week are being mysteriously manipulated. Now, I heard about this after seeing these these filmmakers' movie Spring, which that one blew me away. So I was out to see anything else that they've done. And then I end up seeing The Endless before seeing this one, which is kind of a quasi-sequel where characters reappear. Now, I saw The Endless because when I started doing my charge to see as many new horror films for you know each year i caught that when it was you know making its theatrical run and then i finally got to check this one out as it came to the gateway film center when the fright club podcast was showing it as their monthly movie club now the extent of what i knew about this one is that it involved time travel of some sort now it's also interesting to see the endless first because that really delves into it much more i'm not going to spoil that one but that's what I wanted to bring up, you know, to start off this review. Uh, there's quite a bit of story to something that only runs about 93 minutes. 
The first and most in-your-face concept that this is exploring is addiction, which I personally think both characters are dealing with. The obvious one is Chris, who is portrayed by Kieran, as he's addicted to meth. He's an interesting character that's really funny, but he really doesn't want to live and has his own way of killing himself through drugs. What I take is that his life was hard for him growing up, and he's just given up because it's finally just beaten him down. Now, Michael, who is Salella, is trying to turn him around, but you really can't help somebody that doesn't want to be helped. Chris really does seem like a good guy, though. He has a pretty positive outlook on his life to an extent, and he's quite hilarious. On the other side, though, is Michael. His wife is pregnant, so I feel he's trying to make Chris get clean as he doesn't feel in control of his own life, so he's trying to take control of helping his friend. He's also addicted to learning about the weird things that he's finding. It starts with the opening video where Chris you know, gets it sent through email, and it just shows Chris running around you know, doing the country life, shooting guns, doing meth, and, you know, playing with his dog. But he also claim, Chris claims that he never sent that video. And you kind of see what he's working with and what he's living. It made me start to question how that got filmed. And then it transitions to Michael finding pictures, microfiche, film, VHS, a record just to name some of the media that he finds. He gets a taste and needs to know more. I also think that kind of represents us as the audience in that we're much like Michael as we want to know more and we're getting that through him. A more subtle one is with time loops as well as or time travel aspects. And I think that I, I, mean, I personally do really like that. That's a aspect of movies that if you have, you're usually going to have me on board. It becomes more prevalent as this goes on. If you see this, you'll know what I mean. Since Fright Club did a little bit of a talk afterwards, one of the hosts pointed out that even from the first item Michael finds, it starts to affect the outcome of everything, and that blew me away. And I think what he's trying to get at here is that after he sees that first thing, he's interested to keep finding more, where he probably should just leave and go back home, but he continues to you know, search for this truth. And I said, that blew me away. I don't want to go any further, since this is going to be a mini-review, but that's just something to keep in mind. Something else that I can appreciate is this doesn't overexplain everything. I like that we get little hints of things, and it's ambiguous enough for us to make our own determination. I do want to see this as well as Endless again now that I've experienced both to delve more in because I think there's things that I probably missed, and it just presents things that make me feel uncomfortable, and that's something else that I like. Now, I've already laid out that this has a you know, normal runtime of about 93 minutes. This is a slow burn, but I think it builds mystery and tension from the beginning and I'm a sucker for characters doing research because if I found the things that Michael did I would probably look into them and I'm pretty sure that I'll die if I end up in a horror movie situation because of it seeing and hearing these things just got me unnerved in a way that I wanted more so that was effective I like the ending it is pretty simplistic but just seeing how it plays out leaves me to think that this could have happened and my imagination runs wild taking this to the acting I thought it was good in a natural way. I love the chemistry of Silella and Kieran. Michael wants his friend back and what's best for him, even though his methods aren't the best. He does care, and I see a lot of myself in him as well. Chris is absolutely hilarious. When he starts to get scared is really when I start to feel anxious, as he, he blows it off for most of this film due to his withdrawals. This is really a two-man movie where they... With the rest of the cast running out for what was needed to progress the characters to where they end up, 
Shout out, though, to Benson and Moorhead, who are behind this movie, and they also have cameos, that, and I have to say, that's pretty funny. Also, shout out to Carmel Benson, who is Sarah the Dog. Now, this is a low-budget movie, but it doesn't necessarily feel like it. I thought it was interesting to use the different forms of media to fill in the backstory, and I do wonder where this is located if they had reliable electricity for all the things that we get, but I'm willing to overlook that, and I do have to admit, the camera is shaky. It got on my nerves a bit. There was a disclaimer, though, at the end of this movie that when I read that, a chill came over my body and it no longer became an issue with the camera being as it was. And it's just crazy that little thing explained everything for me. There are also some interesting blips on the footage that are explained later that also has something, you know, that ties back in that I also liked. Uh, there's not much a way of a soundtrack from what I remember. I did get creeped out by the record and the CD that is played in the movie. What we heard made my blood legit run cold. I think that the rest of the sound worked for what was needed and in maintaining the realism of the movie. Now, with that said, this is an interesting film that I really dug. I was already a fan of the duo of Benson and Moorhead, so seeing another of their films that I really liked made me appreciate them even more. I thought the backstory to everything was really good, along with the very real story that is in the forefront. It builds tension from early on and never loses momentum, despite being a slow burn type movie. I think that the acting and chemistry of the two leads really help there, with the rest of the cast rounding this out for what was needed. The effects of the movie didn't use many, but it didn't really need them to be, but they were effective for what we got. The different forms of media were interesting, and I thought the sound design worked. I thought this was a good movie and could possibly go up in rating with another viewing. So currently, I'm sitting at an 8 out of 10. Alright, and for the next movie that I watched this week was Insidious from 2010. This is directed by James Wan, written by Lee Winnell. It stars Patrick Wilson, Rose Byrne, and Ty Simpkins. This is a horror mystery thriller from the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis is, A family looks to prevent evil spirits from trapping their comatose child in a realm called The Further. I'm not going to lie. This was a movie that terrified me the first time that I saw it. I was fresh out of college, saw this with a couple friends from high school, and was living with my grandmother at the time. This legit made me uneasy to the point where I was turning on lights before entering hallways and rooms till I got to my room. And I'm pretty sure this is only the second time that I've ever seen this. And I watched it with my girlfriend and was curious to see how this would hold up. And I think I'm going to run through the characters just really quick. As we have Patrick Wilson is Josh Lambert. His wife is Rose Byrne, who is Renee. Simpkins is their eldest son. And they also have Andrew Astor is Foster, their middle child. And they also have a baby. Lynn Shea is Elise Rainier. The writer of it, uh, Winnell, is also Specs. They have Angus Sampson as Tucker. And then Barbara Hershey plays Lorraine, who is Josh Lambert's mother. And I have to say, after seeing the first one and seeing all of the sequels slash prequels, I have more appreciation for this movie. And I can see how it sparked all those other movies. There's a lot to the story that is introduced here that could be fleshed out later. So it makes a whole lot of sense why they've made four movies at this point. It doesn't take long to get into the creepiness of what's going on. The first thing I want to delve into here is the use of technology. Renee hears creepy voices over the baby monitor, and this is one of the first films that I saw do it at this point in my life, and now those things just completely creep me out. Going along with this, Tucker has created different things that they can use to detect energy from ghosts and make and makes for some parts that get under my skin. I think this really does help to build tension in a way that feels believable. This film also does something that many haunted house films don't do. The family feels 
that the house that they're experiencing this in and it follows them from there. What makes this good is that there's a trope of people staying in the house despite what is happening, and some movies give good reasons why they can't leave. I like here seeing that they flee, and it doesn't make things better. And the writing here is good overall. Linnell, aside from his role in the movie, also wrote the screenplay. I think that he builds some good mythology here to the afterlife, and I like that these little things are introduced early on that play out later. Um, an example of that is some of the drawings that Dalton has done. I should shift to the pacing while covering this as well, since I've already said it doesn't waste time. But what also works is that we don't go too long in between scares. The non-scares parts allow us to piece together what is happening while keeping the intensity going. The tension ramps up towards the climax, which used to bother me, but after seeing this, I really didn't have any issues with some of the things that happen. I also like that it does set itself up for a sequel, but not really in a cheap way. I think that the acting is good across the board. Wilson is a bit of a jerk in that because he's stressed about his home life, he's staying over at work. He does want the best for his family, but it is breaking him down where Renee is facing it head on. I like that he's the one that's skeptical about all of this while having a past he doesn't remember. Burn is great and I feel horrible for her. While Josh is avoiding what is happening, she's taking it head on and willing to do whatever to stay with Dalton. Simpkins was fine, but he's asleep for a good portion of this. Shay is great, and I love that she's kind of the heroine of the series. Winnell and Samson play well off each other. I thought Hershey and the rest of the cast did fine in rounding out what was needed here. The effects for the most part are something I've been waiting to talk about. They really don't seem to go CGI heavy for the most part. I know the ghosts seem to be done practically, and if they use CGI, they hit it well. There are some really creepy things of people in certain places and rooms where characters don't always notice them. That gets under my skin. There's also the lipstick face demon who is Joseph Bashara. I know he's done with CGI at times, but I'm not going to lie. He still makes me uncomfortable. Some of the things that the ghosts do as well make me feel that way. The cinematography is also very good. The last thing to cover would be the soundtrack, which I think is amazing. They use a lot of string instruments, which really help to make the scenes even creepier, if I'm going to be honest. It also helps to raise the tension. On top of that, they use Tiny Tim's tiptoeing through the tulips effectively. I'm not sure if this song that everyone found creepy, but being in this movie, it has ruined it forever in a great way for me. Now, with that said, this is a really good movie. One of the best haunted house films I've ever seen. I even have friends who don't like the genre who like this movie. It doesn't waste any time getting into it, but it also is effective and it scares. It does a lot of things that I find to be unnerving, if I'm, if I'm honest. I think that the acting here really helps as seeing this family fall apart and not knowing what is happening to their son. The effects for the most part are really good. There's one moment of bad CGI with the lipstick face demon though. It isn't as nearly as bad as I thought from my memory. The soundtrack is great and definitely adds to the feel of this movie. Overall, I think this is an amazing film and I've come up on my rating. I'd recommend this to horror and non-horror fans alike and my rating here is going to be a 10 out of 10. And uh, another review of a movie I saw this week is The Purge Anarchy. This is from 2014. It is written and directed by James DeMonico and also based on characters created by him. It stars Frank Grillo, Carmen Ijago, and Zach Guilford. This is a action horror sci-fi thriller from the United States and France. And the synopsis is three groups of people intertwine and are left stranded in the streets on purge night trying to survive the chaos and the violence that occurs now i'll be honest before i first saw this i was leery to check it out as i didn't really care for the first one after my initial viewing i still decided to give this a viewing despite that and i have to say 
this is more of what I wanted from the original. Now, since this is a mini-review, I'm going to, again, just kind of go through the characters that star in this. Um, we do have Frank Grillo, who plays a guy named Sergeant. We have Carmen E. Jago is Eva Sanchez. Shane is Zach Guilford. And then his wife is Liz, who is Kylie Sanchez. Callie is the daughter of Ava, and that is Zoe Soul. There's Tanya, who is Justina Machado. And that's about the extent of the ones that I'm going to go through here, as that's pretty much all of the survivors that we are following. Now, I wasn't necessarily expecting this one to be as good as it was after my viewing of the first, but I have to say, these are two different films. Where the first one is more of a suspense following a family that's trapped in their house, this one takes us out into the war zone, and we get to see different people and groups purging, giving us more of a feel of what's going on, and I actually think that makes this one more tense as well. Now, this one is also quite political, but not enough to ruin it. There's an issue of the rich getting richer, and that is what is happening. The government is off limits to kill you know, high-ranking people, and the rich can't afford to hide while the working class and poor are left to fend for themselves. It really is showing what the rich can do, and going even farther than that, the two main villain groups are quite different but doing similar things. It really just shows this event is more of a guise for the government. Now, for the acting... Grillo plays an interesting character. He's taking advantage of this event for what happened to his son. He can purge the feeling that he's having, but when he sees what's happening to Ava and Callie, we, he does the right thing and shows that he has a good heart. He does get annoyed easily, and I think Grillo does a great job at being this character. Ijago is solid in doing what she can to survive. To go with this, I like that Soul is socially conscious, and her mother encourages it. I liked Guilford and feel bad for him. While thinking Sanchez, his wife here, is quite attractive, their dynamic is interesting for sure. And I think there's some good cameos here from Machado, Beasley, Jack Conley, Noel Guglielmi, Michael Kenneth Williams, and Edwin Hodge. Just to name some of them. They really do well in rounding this out for what is needed. Since one is actually out in the events, I think the pacing works really well. There's that tension and fear of what could happen to them as they're not inside for a good portion. It also does well in introducing us to these characters and getting right into the crux of what is happening after that. I also think that the social commentary isn't too in the face, which also helps here. The ending is pretty interesting, especially with what the new founding fathers, who are the group that starts this, think is you know doing for the people and making things better. I thought the effects were pretty good across the board. They did seem to be done mostly practical. I know the blood we see looks good. The only issue I had is a character gets shot with a machine gun and it's clearly done with CGI. It looked pretty fake to be honest. There were probably others but I didn't really see it and it is shot well other than that with the cinematography. Now I really like this film even after the second viewing. I think it's an interesting look at the United States. At the time of writing this we're six years past and it is looking more and more like this could actually happen. I like the social commentary of what the new founding fathers are really using this event for and how the rich can pretty much take advantage of it. I think that the acting is good in it, along with the pacing. The effects were good for the most part. Just some moments of CGI that weren't. The soundtrack really didn't stand out for me, but it also didn't hurt. It fit for what was needed, and I think this is still a good movie. And so far, of the three that I've seen, still my favorite. And I'm coming in with an 8 out of 10.
And for my final mini review of the week is going to be a Masters of Horror episode imprint. This is directed by Takashi Miike. It is created by Mick Garris. The teleplay for this episode was done by Daisaku Tenga, and it's based off the novel by Shimako Iwa. It stars Billy Drago, Shiho Harumi, and Michi. This is a horror film from Canada, Japan, and the United States. And the synopsis is in the 1800s, an American returns to Japan to find the prostitute he fell in love with, but instead learns of psychical and existential horror that befell her after he left. Now just to introduce some of the major actors here, we have Christopher, who is the American in the synopsis, who is Drago. And then the woman that he spends most of his time with here is Yuki Kudo. And the woman that he fell in love with was Komomo, who is Michi. And this runs 63 minutes. So I, being that this is directed by Mike, he makes use of all that time here. If you've never seen a movie by him, strap yourself in because this is a wild ride. And there's a lot that he puts into this in just that short running time. The first thing I really like about this is that we have two unreliable narrators. The woman that we have here is a whore and it is stated that they never tell the truth and not to believe them. So the first story that she tells to Christopher because he doesn't want to actually sleep with her as he's looking for his love, Komomo. And as he's trying to sleep, he wants her to tell him a bedtime story. And the first tale is that she tells him what he wants to hear, but as he presses her, she starts to tell the truth. Being that she's unreliable though, I don't necessarily know if what she's telling is the truth or if this is the darker side of what he thinks possibly happened. As premise of this is that Komomo committed suicide but he doesn't believe that she would do that and being that christopher isn't the most reliable either is that he you know tells people what he wants to about his own backstory now this has a surreal feel to it both of these characters have dark pasts and they don't want to share it at first i was intrigued by that idea this film brings in so many dark aspects of society that we see even today, which is interesting for the time period in the late 1800s. This deals with things like abortion, incest, just to bring up a couple. Along with that surreal feel, there is a bit of the supernatural here and being punished for things that they're doing as well. I kind of feel bad for the woman to an extent. She's cursed from birth and had to go into prostitution as that's the only kind of line of work that she could do. She decides to do bad things, so it's hard for me to blame her with when we see how she had to grow up. But then there's also the thought of doing better despite your circumstances. It is really an interesting look at both of their lives here. Mike doesn't waste any time with this, though. We really get into the premise within the first 10 minutes, and from there we start getting flashbacks showing us what happened. I obviously like that to be you know shown instead of told. I like that we get multiple versions of these events. There were a couple of times where I was annoyed, though, and not really liking where it was going. But then we see a different version of the truth, and that brought me right back in. The ending is definitely interesting, and I really like the premise of all of this that they were going for. Now, I did have some issues with the acting. I feel bad for saying this, but I did not like Drago's performance. There were times that he overacted, and he never really had me buying into his performance. That's tough, though, when this is, for the most part, a two-person movie with them in the room together, and then everybody else is really just there in support. On the flip side, though, I really liked Kudo and what she brought to this. Her character you feel sorry for and are horrified by in the end of some of the things that she did. Michi and the rest, like I said, were solid in support to develop the truth of both of our leads. 
for the effects. I was semi-prepared for what we got because I have seen a few Mike films, not a lot of them, and he has such a extensive filmography that it's kind of difficult to do that. I'm glad this was originally made for HBO because that brought a lot of the realism to the practical effects that he can do. There's a torture scene that literally had me calling out due to the realism of it and where the person was being hurt made me physically just affected by what I was seeing. If you can get that reaction out of me, you're doing it right. I have to say, there's a bit of creature effects that I didn't really care for. I like the implications of it, but just what we got didn't work for me. Now, there's a legend of a person who had something similar. I won't say the name because that'll give away a lot, and I want to avoid the spoiler. But I think something like that would have worked better for me, especially with how the characters look. You could hide it that way. The flashback events that are happening in the background... I thought was some interesting cinematography to frame it that way and the same goes for ghostly images as well being that the filmmaker is from japan that makes sense to utilize it as you can see similar things in like the ring or the grudge now i've heard some people were down in this episode and i might have benefited from this being the first episode that i've seen all the way through but i really liked what we got pretty limited in my Mike movies that i've seen the ones that i have i've liked this one falls into that it has a complex story despite its running time, and I like the social commentary that he's brought in. The time period makes this interesting. The acting I'm not as high on from the lead, but I thought that Kudo, along with the rest of the cast, were good. The effects really had me cringing, and aside from one creature effect, I was on board there. Uh, the soundtrack didn't necessarily stand out, but I thought it set the mood for what we needed. And it really did feel like we were in Japan. Surprisingly, this is in English, which I know bothered some people. I kind of took it more like the show Vikings, where they're not actually speaking English, but they're speaking Japanese. Since this is aimed at an American audience, it is in English. So that's just how I took it. I could be wrong there. And me, I would have personally have rather seen this in Japanese and just had subtitles, but I get, you know, going for a wider audience. Regardless, I think this is good. And I'm excited to check out the rest of the series now. I can't recommend this to fans outside of the genre, though, just because of how brutal this gets during, you know, a little stretch there. But I have to say, I'm coming in at an 8 out of 10. And now what I'm going to do is send you over to, to the trailer for my first of my featured reviews, which the remake of The Grudge. Hello? Hello? Police department. This is Matheson. I'm Detective Muldoon. I'm gonna talk to you about a woman we found. You feed me. Excuse me? William, he always used to feed me. William was your husband? Yeah. Ma'am, are you alone in the house right now? Are you alone? Uh, you need to help me. Uh, you need to help me. 
Okay, and my first featured review of 2020 is going to be for the remake of The Grudge. This is directed by Nicholas Pesch, who also did the screenplay, but worked on the story with Jeff Bueller. And this is also based on the original screenplay by Takashi Shimitsu. This stars Tara Westwood, Junko Bailey, and David Lawrence Brown. This is a horror mystery from the United States and Canada. This is currently sitting on a 4.1 on IMDb and a 1.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a house is cursed by a vengeful ghost that dooms those who enter it with a violent death. Now, this one I was curious to check out after hearing an interview with writer-director Nicholas Pesch. I knew there were talks of the grudge being remade yet again, and it made me wonder, as it seemed to be in development hell for a while, Pesh was on, I believe, Shockwave's podcast to talk about a film that I saw that kicked off my horror viewing for 2019 and piercing. So it's just interesting that my first horror film of this year is from the same director who was one of my first ones from last year. Now, we start this as a semi-sequel to the original Japanese franchise. Fiona Landers, who is Westwood, is leaving a house in Tokyo that looks very similar and calls her family to tell them that she's coming home. She's clearly spooked and she notices a trash bag as it looks like it's breathing almost. And then having another one, a arm reaches out and grabs her. And then we learn that this is taking place in 2004. Fiona then makes it home to her husband, Sam, who is brown, and her daughter, Melinda, who is Zoe Fish. We then shift between two different years with one of them actually being the present and from what i've gathered now i know in the movie they actually tell you but everything that i've seen the present is actually 2006 and i think i read somewhere online as well that this takes place in between the original grudge movie and the grudge 2 so this is like a concurrent storyline that is different from those ones now, we get Detective Muldoon, who is Andrea Risebro, has moved into a new house with her son, Burke, who is John J. Hansen. Through their interactions, we learn that his father and her husband passed away from cancer. She's going to be the new partner to Goodman, who is Demian Bicker. Their first case together is a dead woman found in a crashed car off of an access road. It is there that another cop tells who this woman is and the house that she came from. And we clearly see that Goodman is bothered by this, but he doesn't say anything. So Detective Muldoon talks to the other cop who gives her some hints as to what to look into. And then it is through another detective we learn that the case messed with Goodman, but oddly enough, he never went into the house while investigating it, only his partner did. As part of her investigation, she goes there to discover another body, and this leads to an even deeper mystery that involves the realty agents of Peter, who is John Chow, and his pregnant wife, as well as partner, Nina Spencer, who is Betty Gilpin. The current residents are Faith Matheson, who is the legendary Lin Shea, her husband, William, who is Frankie Faison, and Detective Wilson, William Sadler, also has to do with this a little bit as well, who is Goodman's former partner. Now, strange things start to happen to Muldoon, making her think that this curse might actually be real. Now, I have to give credit to Pesh. He did a really good job at continuing on with what Shimitsu, his versions of the story. 
This is interesting as it follows the vein of other remakes that play out as a sequel that we've been seeing a lot of lately in the film industry. This pretty much is incorporating elements from the first two American Grudge films, which after I was looking up some trivia and realized that's what they were kind of going for, makes a whole lot of sense, where this woman returned to the United States when she was working in Japan and brought the curse home with her. Another aspect is that in the Japanese American remake and this one all have a police officer as one of the main characters investigating what is happening. Something else I should bring up here is that Pesh is incorporating the non-linear telling of the story. And I'll be honest, it took me a bit to piece this together how everything fit. And I'm probably going to do a spoiler section that's going to be really short at the end of this just to kind of flesh out my thoughts on it a little bit more because I think I figured it out. And if you hear something off, I would be greatly appreciated if you would reach out to me so I can make sure that, you know, I get everything straight with me because that can, you know, affect my rating in the end. Now, I have to admit, I saw the other American remake first before the others, and this way of telling the story threw me off, and I didn't care for it at first. It took me multiple viewings where actually now I think it's clever, and this also had similar things where I could piece it together so I, didn't, so I don't have issues there. It really is an intricate way of telling a story, if I'm going to be honest. Now, to get back to the story of the movie, I don't know if I like where they went with it. We get to see Kayako who in this one is Junko Bailey, as a ghost briefly, but then in America it changes. I don't necessarily like this idea here. I almost feel like if they're going to go this route, they should have just taken the idea of the original and then just had it happen here, or have gone with a Japanese family doing it here, if that's the route they were going to take. It just doesn't make sense for her to encounter that spirit and then be able to create its own curse here that is completely separate and different. Now, this version does also have a lot of callbacks to other films. There's a scene where Muldoon sees someone on camera and then plays it back. That was something that I remember from both the original Japanese one as well as its remake. Now, there's something I don't like here, though, is when she tries to show it to someone else, it's not there. I don't mind the aspect of that person thinking that she might be losing it, because that does add a layer of, are what we see in really happening, or is she just spooking herself to the point where that's why it's happening? But something great about the original is that when they watch that film of the security camera, the curse extends to that person by watching it back, and I thought that was kind of cool. This one is also much more bloody and brutal than the others, which doesn't really feel like a grudge film by going that route, but I actually kind of dug it by it being its own thing. It is really the only death that starts it all, but this one actually incorporates the curse, causing the initial person to be violent to attack those at home as well. And I do have to say the acting here is really strong. Westwood I thought was fine in her role, as well as Bailey, Brown, and Fish. They were all creepy at different times for sure. Riseboro is pretty much the lead here. I find her really talented, and I believe the first thing I ever saw her in was Mandy from a couple years ago, and she looks like someone who is just dealing with the stress of life, and it's really breaking her down. Her idea of trying to clear her head is to dive into a case that was the downfall of her current partner's former partner, Bicker, I thought was solid. I liked Shay, Chow, Gilpin, uh, Jackie Weaver makes an appearance here as well, as well as I thought Faison in all of their roles were solid as well. They're really put together a great cast that works well off each other in their separate yet connected stories. As for the effects, I was wondering in this day and age if they would go CGI heavy 
or with just jump scares. They pretty much did both. I've been critical of jump scares, but after listening to some people talk about it, I like them when they're done effectively. We get here a few, and I will admit one of them got me. This one does something that really creeps me out with people not noticing there's someone in the room behind them or seeing a character in the window while you're outside. I will be leaning on the CGI with those. It didn't look horrible, but it also didn't creep me out as much as I wanted it to. Now there's, it just kind of makes it look like a ghostly at times when you go that route. I heard there was a dummy death in this movie, which there was, and it made me laugh a little bit. I'm not going to lie. Uh, the movie is shot well overall though. The last thing I would have to talk about is the sound design. I like that they kept the creepy sound that the ghosts make. That will always get under my skin. I also think that I heard variations of it in scenes as well when the ghost might actually be there. But it'd be like a... I believe at one point there is a like engine who makes a sound that's very similar to that. So I just thought that was something clever. The song selections outside of that were pretty solid. I did notice them a few times, so I'm pretty positive how they were all used overall. And now with that said, I heard some people being down on this, but I still wanted to see it to judge for myself. I think that there are some good aspects of the story. I don't mind bringing this to the United States and making it kind of a sequel remake that we're seeing a lot of. Some of the changes to the story worked for me, but there are some that just really didn't. I think it would be better using the idea and just starting fresh as opposed to what we did. The acting is strong. Uh, the editing and the non-linear story can get a bit confusing, but the more I think about it, the more it works. The effects weren't great, but there were some things that did creep me out. It just didn't do enough. I also thought the sound design was quite effective. Overall, I'd say this is just over average for me, but then again, with untapped potential that causes this to fall short. I was originally going to come in at a 5.5, but kind of talking this out and just thinking about it, um, you know, talking with some of the people that I have met through podcasts and just in the horror community, I think I'm going to go ahead and just give this a 6. And just for some brief spoilers, I'm just going to kind of go through what I think the chain of events are in order because what i think it is is of course we get to see fiona when she encounters this by working in the house she brings it home to her family from there she kills them so her her husband and her daughter all become part of the curse then from there is when i believe they start to try to sell their house so character of peter tries to sell their house now i get a little bit confused here because he's trying to get them to sign closing documents so that tells me that the house has already been sold to William and Faith Matheson, but they wouldn't still be in the house like they are because once you sign the closing papers, you're supposed to vacate the property. But I believe what they're trying to do here is say that they were in the process of moving, but then they had killed themselves. And see, that's where I'm getting myself confused because we know that there was the triple homicide there that got the they got the detectives involved, which is where William Sadler's character starts to, uh, Detective Wilson, starts to look into this incessantly. But then I do know that the middle one is Peter Spencer and his wife, how they get affected by all of this. And then finally is when Faith is living there and her husband passes away where Detective Muldoon gets involved and that's when the curse you know, goes over to her family. Now, if I'm off on any of this or I've misspoke on any of it, like I said, please reach out to me either via email, you know, Facebook Messenger, whatever way you prefer, because I would like to talk about it. Um, I know I was talking to Derek B a little bit over Facebook Messenger and he brought up some cool points, um, especially one about how Nicholas Pesh's movies 
are all paying homage to different eras of film. And so I had to give him credit here for bringing that up because he definitely, you know, told me. So, you know, shout out to him. So that's really all I have to say about this. What I'm going to go ahead and do now is kick you over to the trailer for my second featured review. Mrs. Pressman had high hopes for her son, John. John is your best boy, isn't he, mother? Yes, John. You're my best boy and the best surgeon in town. But the world conspired against him. I told you to take these things out of my eyes. Don't get upset. I, I take them out. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? Do you hear me? Do you hear me? Don't be sorry. Until John found a way to please his mother. Well, you did a good job, John. Add to his collection. All the eyes of the city will be ours. And even get into the movies. One place. When you disobey mother? Anguish. All right, and my second featured review is going to be for Anguish. This is from 1987, uh, also the year of my birth. It is directed by Vegas Luna, and it's also written by him, as well as Michael Berlin helped with the dialogue. It stars Zelda Rubinstein, Michael Lerner, Talia Paul. This is a horror thriller from Spain. It is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis, a controlling mother uses telepathic powers to send her middle-aged son on a killing spree. Now, this is a film that I never heard of until I got, until this actually got an updated release about a year or so ago. And I heard about it on podcasts. Um, it did sound intriguing, and I decided to make this a featured review for my first normal podcast of 2020. As I said earlier, the theme being to check out movies I'd never seen before, and I had made a very long list from things I heard on podcast, and then used a randomizer after I assigned a number to all of them, and this is the first one that came up. Um, we start this with a disclaimer that I kind of thought was interesting, stating that what you're about to see, you will be subjected to subliminal messages and mild hypnosis. This will cause you no physical harm or lasting effects, but if for any reason you lose control or feel that like your mind is leaving your body to leave the uh, auditorium immediately. And then it shifts to the home of Mother, who is uh, Rubenstein, and her son John, who is Michael Lerner. She has an affinity for snails and things that have a spiral on it. Um, her son keeps birds, which we get a weird scene where one of them gets out and there's a panic to try to get it back in there. And it actually gets stuck behind a cupboard and they have to use a knife very carefully to pry the cupboard, like to cut through it and to, to pry it open in order to save the bird from behind that and get it back into its cage. John is an orderly for an eye doctor and we get an odd scene where he tries to put in contacts into a woman's eyes and this causes her to freak out, saying that it hurts too much. And I kind of got the idea and we learn here soon after, she's a little bit well-to-do. So I kind of feel she has this entitled feeling to try to calm her down, it is explained that John is extremely myopic and has uncontrolled diabetes that is causing him to go blind. And they hint at the fact that his mother is domineering and quite demanding. And this doesn't really 
help the woman's fears or any of her worries, so she storms out. And when John goes home, this is where Zelda then hypnotizes him, and she has him go to this woman's house where he murders her, as well as her, I'm assuming her husband. And this is really interesting because they kind of focus on the eyes as he pries both of them out and washes them in the sink, and that his mother is stating the fact that they're going to collect all the eyes of the city. But this is where we get our first real twist. What we are seeing is actually a movie. So there is a bunch of people in a movie theater where Patty, who is uh, Talia Paul, that experiences an anxiety attack and wants to leave while her friend Linda, who is played by Clara Pastor, is engrossed in what she has seen. Others are experiencing similar things of having, I guess, panic attacks or anxiety-induced, different things like that. And one of them is a man who is Angel Yove, who is getting more and more agitated as he keeps checking his watch. Now, I don't want to go too much more into the story here, but the theater, everybody in there who is watching starts to get more and more agitated until a crazy thing happens, which I think at the end I'll have a kind of spoiler section where I go into a little bit more in depth of this. Shouldn't be too long though. This doesn't have the most complex story, but there is a lot going here. The first thing I wanted to cover is the disclaimer at the beginning. I thought it was an interesting thing to start with as it put a notice in my head and it almost made me more anxious to see how things were going to start playing out. So I do have to give them credit for that. And there's parts in this movie where hypnotisms are happening. I'm paying more attention and they're quite engaging so that helps and that kind of goes back to the disclaimer as well. And there's more to this disclaimer as well that if someone talks to you during the film that you don't know, do not engage with them or give them your ticket as there is psychological help afterwards if it is needed. I get this as a gimmick, but I put I like that it puts the seeds there like I was saying. Now, for the first part of the movie with John and his mother, I found this to be quite creepy. She is overbearing and knows how to hypnotize him. And it is fitting as she uses the spiral record to do so. And she also loves snails with their shell and there's a moment where she's upset and is carving a similar pattern into wood with one of her knitting needles she thinks the most of her son and thinks that he's this greatest surgeon in the city but he's actually nothing more than an orderly and there's an interesting moment where we hear her going on and on about it and a lady over the phone tells her what her son actually does and i mean of course being the type of mother she is she ignores it and she's also psychically connected to him I'm assuming through the hypnotism, as the things that he does, he can hear her. And she at one point tells him to come home, but he is determined to, you know, keep going. He ends up going to a theater where he holds that hostage and starts to kill off people that are in there. And I think it's interesting, as I was going to say, is that the movie they're showing is a 1920s version of The Lost World. I'm assuming this is partly due to it probably being public domain back then. But it's also interesting that he's lost in what he's doing much like the characters in that movie. Now shifting to the movie, the people that are watching in the theater of this movie, this is really a meta approach for an era where there's not a lot of films that are doing that. So we really get kind of an inception feel where we have a movie within a movie. As they're watching it, it is inducing anxiety and disorientation, which is interesting because I'm feeling anxiety watching what is going on. So I'm putting myself with these characters and if you can do that for me, that's something I'm on board with. Patty at one point goes to the bathroom and she's hearing the mother's voice while she's in there and this is causing her to panic even more. They're all seeing this movie called The Mommy, which is, you know, the Zelda Rubenstein 
section. There are other parallels between the two with what is happening in that movie and what is happening in the theater. Again, this will be something I'll touch on a little bit more in the spoiler section as well. As for the pacing, it had me hooked from the beginning. It doesn't take long to get into the more surreal aspects of it, which is the best way that I can describe it. I knew that these people were watching the movie, so I wasn't shocked as I had heard about it through um, just people talking about how, you know, just crazy this movie is. I did feel that there was a part of this that develops, though, that I did lose a little bit of interest. I thought it was building to something really good and then lost what it wanted to do. And a lot of that is the theater of people watching the mommy on the screen. What it finally ended up doing in the very end did bring me back in, so I do have to give it credit there. I thought the acting of all of this was good. I grew up with Rubenstein and Poltergeist, so it's interesting to see her in this Spanish production as a villain. On top of that, Lerner is an actor I've seen before in more secondary roles. Much like with Mother, I found it interesting to see him in this role, and I thought it worked. As for Paul, I felt bad for her. She really didn't want to be in this movie to begin with, it seems like. And with Linda ignoring her, it's just making it even worse. Seeing her break down was pretty powerful, and I mean, she's just literally crying and doesn't know what to do. But I can't blame Pastor though. As a cinephile, I don't like to be bothered if I'm engrossed in a film and that's exactly what she is. And I also think there's some social commentary here of those watching movies like this without knowing what is going on around them and how sucked in that we can get. Uh, now this makes it seem like it's an issue though. That is also prevalent with Hove, which I thought he did good. The rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed as well. I thought the effects were good. This really focuses a lot on the eyes, which I think plays back into my last point about audiences seeing things while not doing anything about it. There's quite a bit of eye trauma, which had me cringing, because that's one place that really kind of just affects me, so I like that. The movie does cut away, though, so we really only see the beginning and the end of these attacks. It does make it for me to be able to, I, I can handle it better seeing it that way. The eyes that they used did look pretty real, if I'm going to be honest. I thought that the blood looked good and the rest of the gore that we did get. The cinematography I thought was really good as well. The last thing to cover would be the soundtrack. I thought it was used very effectively, especially during the hypnotizing scenes. It really had my anxiety going, which is effective in my book. I also like when the people start to talk to the screen. It is synced up to where it seems that they're talking back and forth. Now this is partially good editing, but I was impressed either way. Now with that said, I'm glad I finally checked this one out. There's some really good meta things about this film that came out you know, over 30 years ago, which I found to be pretty impressive. I really like the commentary here about us as an audience and what we're seeing and how we don't notice what is going on around us. This becomes quite scary that people have you know, done what ends up happening in this film. So you know, seeing people get attacked inside of a theater is pretty unnerving and almost kind of rounds back to you know life imitating art. I think that the writer and director Begis Luna strategically used The Lost World. He also constructed a film that got my anxiety going through images and sounds. The acting was solid across the board and I thought that the effects were too. I found this to be a good movie and would recommend giving this one a viewing, especially if you're into more meta horror. So I had to come in here with an 8 out of 10. And then now just to switch over to some spoilers here. Um, something I was kind of hinting at a little bit ago was some of the meta aspects. It's interesting that when I was coming out of the end of college, when The Dark Knight came out and there was the man who shot up the theater, it's just crazy for the fact that this movie has something like that where the guy has a gun and a silencer going around picking people off. I don't really like that he is shooting up the place 
because in the movie we have somebody using a knife to you know stab them and to you know pick out their eyeballs with it where he's going around shooting people but i do like though is that he has lost his mind because he's seen this movie so many times before we know it's him he goes up to the counter to get to talk to somebody and they say oh about how many times he's been there to see this i found this to be extremely interesting because going and being hypnotized over and over again to the point where he's finally snapped. So I thought that was a really cool aspect of this movie. I did find it quite interesting that Michael Lerner is only eight years younger than Zelda Rubenstein, who plays his mother in the film. And it looks like the role was originally offered to Betty Davis, but due to scheduling conflict, she couldn't do it. I think that'd be an interesting way to take this, having somebody like Betty Davis who... I've seen her in other things where, like, whatever happened to Baby Jane where she is just batshit crazy. I think she would have been very effective in this role. And then the ending that I really liked about it as well is the fact that our character of Linda, she gets taken hostage and she believes that she's going to be killed by the gunman. And she thinks that in the movie, somebody throws a knife and it goes into the person's eye. She actually thinks that happens to her to the point where she starts to freak out. But then it, another twist at the very end is that her whole thing has been a movie and the end credits are showing people getting up out of theater. Almost like we are watching somebody who is watching a movie about people go crazy and it's just kind of even more of an inception thing where you just have so many different layers on top of each other. I definitely found this to be quite interesting and I'm not going to lie, I really dug this movie to the point where I'm going to seek this out as I enjoyed it that much. So that's really all I wanted to go into there. There wasn't a whole lot more that I could come you know, here with. I was hoping there was going to be some special features or something that I could delve into a little bit more, but there wasn't. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is send us to a musical break, you know, one last one, and then close out the show.
I want to thank you again for listening to episode 10 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. Just kind of some housekeeping. If you want to get in touch with me, you can via email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. Any of my written reviews, if you want to read them, they're at Reviews of the Dead, and that is horrorreview.webnode.com. Facebook, you can find me at David Michigan Garrett Jr. Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish, all one word. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. And then uh, FlickChat, we've had a little bit of people talking over there. That join code is Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. I'm thinking my plan for next episode is hopefully I'm going to be able to catch Underwater, new movie review that I do, and I didn't realize I was going to rhyme that there. And then I'm also going to check out The Bar, which I believe is an Alex de Alaglacia film. So that's what my plan is now. Hopefully nothing with that changes. But as always, thank you once again for listening and coming on this journey with me. This is David Garrett Jr. signing off.